This morning, we're going to kick off this series on um, kingdom perspective, and this is important, okay? Because right now, we are in a season where God is stirring up revival. God is stirring up revival, and I love Dr. Lucy declared that from the stage last week, and what he's doing is he's stirring up revival. What does that look like? That means for each and every one of us, God is wanting to stir up within us a passion to become revived. That's what revival means, to become revived, to have his life flowing in and through us. Who's experiencing a bit of that? I'm loving, like... One of my favorite meetings recently was the Heart of the House, which was one of the Wednesday nights that we did. And let's just say it didn't go to plan, but it went to God's plan. And how incredible. What a night to hear uh, from Pastor Don and Julia. And then basically we sang a song, and I think for the next hour and a half, people getting prayed for, people are being revived, words are being given. I think we tried to end that meeting twice. (laughs) And that is the season that we're in, that God is reviving, and it's not just for us. It's for the world around you. So I actually wanted to start with a little bit of an illustration. Then I'm going to teach for a little bit, and then we're going to go back to that illustration. Is that okay? It's a little, like normally in a bit of a linear fashion, you wouldn't do that. You might teach, and then you end with this illustration, and it's like, oh, cool, brings everything home. But I think this is important. It's something, if you don't get anything else, I want you to get this this morning. Kingdom perspective is so important because it's not just about us, it's about the world around us. Okay, there's this great theologian, his name is Bock, not Spock, but Bock, okay? And he said this, the church is the audiovisual representation of God's reconciling work in the world, okay? So we are the audiovisual representation of God's reconciling work in the world, what he's doing. And that's so important because, yes, as the church, we've been called to partner with Jesus in what he's doing, right? We partner with Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to do the will of the Father, which is to see his kingdom experienced. But first and foremost, we are basically God's product demonstration. You guys get that? We're his product demonstration. We are an example of what it looks like for a life to be transformed by God. That is why a kingdom perspective is so important. It's not just a moment where we say a prayer or we put our hand up and we go, you know what, sorted, that's my insurance policy now. No, it's so much more than that. It's God who's wanting to transform a life to show off just how good and faithful and loving He is. We are basically... A product demonstration. Audiovisual. So, you know, when someone looks at you, they should go, wow. They might not have everything together, but I can see God doing something in their life. That's the important thing about the testimony of time, right? That over time, it's like, okay, this is not just a phase. Okay. They haven't lost their rocker. Something's happening. 
You know, audio, you know, audiovisual. You know, the, the type of conversations that we have changes with kingdom perspective. And, you know, the other night I had the absolute privilege of being able to join the Alpha crew who were doing their final night. And um, it was on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we were watching a few videos, talking about it, and then praying for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was such an incredible night. And there was an analogy given that I just had one of those light bulb moments. We know what those are like. The light bulb moment where it just goes, okay, we are the product demonstration. Pretend, if you will, that your life is the sponge. Okay? This is a used sponge. I actually have no idea what it was last used for, so hopefully I don't have an allergic reaction or something. Um, the reason I thought a used sponge was important was one of the last times I did a, um, a sermon prop, I brought a spade, and, um, and Jenny Anderson reckoned it had never been used before. But I promise you it had. So this is a used sponge again. Our lives are like a sponge, And when we come to know God and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are, as the word baptized, we are fully immersed, right? And our life is changed in us, through us, around us. We soak Him in. Things begin to shift. And you know, this morning... You might be sitting there and you go, man, I never experienced that before. I wonder what that's like. Well, we're going to make an opportunity later. Or maybe even this morning you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I feel a bit dry. That is the importance of being filled by the Holy Spirit. It refreshes us. It fills us. It envelops us. But this is the thing. That was that light bulb moment for me. Sometimes we get in that zone where all we want to do is turn up to church and just be filled, and just be filled, and just be filled, and just be filled. I think we've got some more water, and just be filled, (laughs) and just be filled, and God, just give me one more word, and oh man, I need to get on the altar and get prayed for one more time. I need another experience, whether that's the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and I fall down, or I, um, you know, I just feel and sense His presence around me. I just need another scripture. I just need another sermon. I just need to be filled, and who knows that like a sponge, you reach a filling point, Right? doesn't matter how long I leave it in here, it is filled, right? It's filled. What's the purpose of a sponge? Not only to be filled, but to be used. And as it is used, the overflow of the Holy Spirit goes to the world around us. And then we can be filled with some more because we've got some more capacity, Right? And then as we're used, as we're in action, doing what we're called to do, the power of the Holy Spirit overflows to those around us. And then we can be filled, right? We are the product demonstration of what it is to be the sponge. Filled with God, overflowing with His goodness and His love and His mercy, but then to be put into action. And as we're used, it overflows so that we can be filled. 
And I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of just wanting to be in here being filled, right? So that, before we begin, is the reason why having a kingdom perspective is so important. Now check this out. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to head to Matthew 18. And the reason we're going to go to Matthew 18 is it is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Um, Also, it is a passage where Jesus does some pretty good teaching on what the kingdom of God is like, okay? So I thought, what better than to kick off uh, this theme on kingdom perspective than by starting with Jesus just basically talking about what it's like? Sound good? So, chapter 18 starts with this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Great question. Can't help but admit, sometimes I'm a little bit like that. Turn up someplace and I'm like, who's in charge? Who's the one who gets to make all the calls? Can't help but think sometimes we turn up to church like that sometimes too, right? We think that to have attained it is to be the greatest. And so Jesus, who is busy starting this movement, is like, okay, we're going to shift a bit of perspective here. In the world, you know, you guys think that this kingdom's going to be established. It's all about vying for the best position. It's all about vying to be the greatest. But I'm going to flip this. And what does he say? He says, he grabs a child and he goes, to be the greatest is to be like this child. To humble yourself like this child. He flips it on its head. And so he starts messing with their perception. He goes on to say um, that, you know, it's to be like this child. He goes on to tell the parable of the lost sheep. We remember that last week. That he's talking about, you know, it's not about the greatest or who's the most perfect, but this is about coming to Jesus. This is about a, a, a community where God is so focused that no one would be lost, no one would be forsaken, that even God himself, the shepherd, would leave the 99 to go find the one. As we're all thinking about who's the greatest. <laughs> no, it's about people, not positions. It's about people. He goes on to talk about, okay, so I get it, I know, as this community grows, as people are transformed by God, as we are to humble ourselves to be born again and act like children and that innocence and that, and that love towards God, that we're going to have some problems. Who's ever experienced a problem before? Oh, you're good. That's all of us. Okay, so Jesus is talking to us. He goes on to talk about, okay, in the church, you're going to have problems. So when your brother sins against you, this is what you do. This is how you solve it, okay? And he talks about this three-step process where basically, if someone sins against you, go talk to them about it. If they don't sort it out, bring someone with you. If If they don't sort it out, then take it to the church if they don't sort it out. There's a process, okay? And then Peter, one of my favorite people in the Bible, absolute character, jumps in with this question. And this is where we're starting, okay? He says this, and it's in 1821. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Because sure, you've just talked about this whole thing about, okay, 
This community is just not about a few and no one else, and it's not about trying to be the greatest. And yet, cool, God's heart is no one will be lost, and he even leaves the 99 to find the one. Um, and we talk about that there's going to be some problems, and we've got to solve those conflicts. But come on, you know, uh, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? So Jesus has just given this three-step process. The Pharisees used to teach that it was three times, and then, yeah, you can let it go. You can hold it against them. So Peter's trying to one-up, right? He's probably trying to make up for the fact that um, Jesus had said, get me behind me, Satan, <laughs> at some point when he tried to rebuke Jesus. Anyway, he goes up to seven times, and Jesus answered with this. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Far out. Now, I think it was all of us eh, who said that we've had conflict before. (laughs) 77 times. This is the genius of Jesus, right? What I love about Jesus is that he is the master communicator. He knows how to say the right thing at the right time with hardly any words for the most impact. So Peter says, surely up to seven times. Jesus says, not seven, 77 times. Now, what Jesus is saying here isn't about math, okay? So Peter's going math. Three times, sure, you know, I'll show a little bit of mercy. We'll make it seven Okay, Pastor John, um, I'm sorry, I'm only picking on Pastor John because we all know he would never do this, okay? Okay, so Pastor John backstabbed me on Monday. (laughs) He reversed into my car on Tuesday intentionally, uh, and then on Wednesday, he started a prayer group and messenger without me because he's concerned about me to tell everybody what I've been doing. Just jokes. It's not about math going, you know, one, two, three. As soon as I get to seven and then Jesus goes 77, and it's like, man, I've got to like have an app for that. (laughs) Clicking away. John's got 77 chances and then we're done. Then I'm off the hook. Then I don't have to forgive and show mercy. No, Jesus was being far more clever than that. Did you know there are two places in the Bible where this is mentioned? The 77. Right here and right in Genesis 4. Jesus was making a very profound statement to shift us into kingdom perspective. Genesis 4. I'm sure we all know the story. There were two brothers. Who could hazard a guess who the brothers were? Nailed it. Cain and Abel. They had a little bit of conflict, didn't they? Just a smidge. It pretty quickly escalated into murder, okay? And so Cain murders his brother Abel. You know, God in his mercy had come to him before that moment and had said this. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must master it. I love that language that it almost sounds like an animal, right? That when we don't choose 
that kingdom perspective or to live the way that God has purposed for us, that we become less than human. That's what sin will do to you. It will make you less than human, to act out in a way that is less than human. And so when God does actually confront Cain after the murder, Cain freaks out and he goes, as I, because he's banished, as I wander the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so, if anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Okay, so not just vengeance, but radical vengeance seven times over. And so we skip a few verses, and there's this guy, Lamech, okay? And what Lamech, he, he sings this, this, this song that's recorded here, and he, he, he sings it to his wives, and it says, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Boasting. Vengeance. You know what my perspective is? My perspective is I take vengeance to the absolute limit beyond what you can even fathom that it seems ridiculous that of course I wouldn't have my app and go vengeance one, vengeance two, vengeance three, vengeance four, got to get up to 77. We are talking about to the absolute extreme. And so Jesus was flipping it. He's taking a story that they know and saying, just like Lamech boasted about taking vengeance to the absolute extreme, you've got it all wrong. It's not about math. It's not just one, two, three, or one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We need to be radical in our mercy, in our forgiveness, in the way that we don't hold things against people. We need to be radical. Because who knows that that doesn't come naturally? Or am I the only one? No, I'm glad there's a few hands. <laughs> In fact, I'm glad there's some waving hands this morning. You know how I know? Fight or flight. What happens when something, there's a bit of conflict? You either fight. There's some hilarious videos, eh, of things like that. We just lash out. Instinctive. Or flight. I'd never admit if I was a flight person. <laughs> and it's so, it's so true. I mean, just look at kids. See, Keely, my beautiful daughter, absolute princess, who is um, very quickly on her way to two years old, demonstrated to me that mercy isn't always a natural response. <laughs> so the other morning, Harvey is getting ready for kindy, right? And every parent knows this, where you're just like, come on, put your shoes on. Come on, you've got to get your shoes on. And he's playing. And then we discover that Keely's got this crazy thing about shoes, which sounds really dangerous when she's older. That's going to be expensive. Um, she's stealing his shoes and wearing them around the house. So Harvey does what an almost five-year-old would do, which is kind of grab her leg and take the shoe off, right? So she falls on her bum. And to Keely, it's like, you've just taken my shoe. And I witnessed for the first time my princess whole demeanor change. As she stands up, she basically lets out a roar 
gets her hands out and lunges at Harvey's head. <laughs> Takes him out. I'm trying not to laugh. Kim's like picking her up, turning her head, trying not to laugh. And Harvey's just laying dazed, like, what has just happened? No, we know our response sometimes when we feel wronged is to retaliate. And um, depending on what type of wrong that is, maybe even vengeance. And depending how many times you've been hurt before in your life, taking it to the extreme. That we would read a story like Lamech and go, yeah, I get it. Not seven times, but 77 times. And Jesus goes and flips it and says, actually... To be in the kingdom, to be a follower of me, to demonstrate what it is to be transformed by my love is to be Lamech-like, but with mercy. 77 times. And so he breaks, he, he, he kind of breaks it down further and, and begins to tell the story, which is the parable of the unmerciful servant. It says this in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts. A man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, we can understand this in English, but when we read this in Greek, literally Jesus' storytelling flair comes to life. Okay, So 10,000 talents seems like a lot, right? 10,000 was the largest number they had at the time that they had a Greek term for. It's the largest number they had a Greek term for. And talents was the largest known amount of money. In fact, it was not a coin, it was a weight. In fact, um, they believe it was about somewhere between 16 and a half to 20 years worth of salary as a talent, and go times that by the largest number they can think of. So in other words, Jesus is basically saying, this guy is screwed. <laughs> He's coming to the king, and he owns ozillions. Like, this is the type of thing that um, I have done the math, but it's basically like saying, well, you'd have to be like Jeff Bezos to pay this off. Um, so he's screwed. And so what does he do? He's, he's not able to pay. And the master is ordering that he and his wife and his kids and all that he has is sold to repay the debt. And we know that that's not going to repay it, right? And so he falls on his knees before him and he says, be patient with me. I will pay back everything. Who knows that you do some really crazy things when you're desperate? There is no way he's going to pay this back, right? Jesus has just said he owns, he basically Jesus said he owns zillions. And yet he's on his knees asking the king for mercy. He'll pay it back. And the servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. Now, here's another fun fact about the Greek here, just Jesus' storytelling. Um, when we're talking about debt, we're talking about that you are morally and legally obligated to pay it. Like, this is damages you owe, Okay. Uh, the king here actually switches the word to basically say he took pity on him and canceled. It was like a loan or a gift. It's all good. We're sorted. Okay? Like, how's that for mercy? He is legally obligated to pay this king zillions, and the king is just going, you know what? We'll just chalk it up like it's a gift. It's sorted. Don't worry about it. 
And so he goes and he celebrates and he's merciful for the rest of his life, right? I think you guys know the story. Instead, he went out and he found one of his fellow servants, Pastor John. (laughs) And he said that the servant owed him a hundred denarii, okay? Which is basically, that is, a denarii is a day's worth of wages. So, you know, we're talking about 20K, okay, if we go a hundred times that. We're talking about 20K. So it's not nothing, but it's not zillions, right? And what does he do? He says, it says that he grabs him and chokes him, demanding pay back what you owe me. And his fellow servant, Pastor John, <laughs> falls to his knees and begs him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. He's probably got a chance of paying him back, right? 20K-ish, it'll take a very long time. But yes, and I'll pay you back. But, it says he refused, and instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. How ridiculous, thrown into prison. Do you think you could earn that back in prison? Don't think so. So he's been forgiven of zillions, chalked up just like it's a gift, don't even worry about it, and yet he is so focused on this vengeance with somebody else. And so when the other servants heard that it happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything. And then it says, then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours. Now we're switching, he's not talking about a loan or a gift anymore, he's going back into, you owe me this. I canceled all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? just as I had on you, and in anger his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back what he owed. And then how's this for a sombering thought? This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is trying to make a point. The kingdom perspective is to be people who are radical mercy givers and forgivers. Just like we have experienced the radical mercy of God, it doesn't matter what you've done, you are not too far gone. Just like you have received that amazing mercy and forgiveness, we are to be people who by the supernatural empowering of God is to extend that mercy and forgiveness. In fact, this was so important to Jesus, a bit like how we read in um, John and his letters that, you know, how can the love of God be in you if you don't love your brother? We've heard that over the last couple of weeks. Um, This was so important to Jesus. This is not the only time he said this. Do we remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. Sombering. 
kingdom perspective, we need to be radical mercy givers, radical forgivers. In Mark 11, listen to this. I've heard this one quoted in a prayer meeting before. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Does that sound good? That's what we were praying for this morning as we're praying for Lani and Karen and Trisha and Vicky and all those people who aren't here. We are believing that we have received it. And then it says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Why was this so important to Jesus? Because we are God's product demonstration. If we have received God's mercy, His desire is that we would extend mercy. That we wouldn't just come and be filled and filled and filled like a sponge, but we would be used in overflowing that, in, I like that thought of a sponge, in cleaning people up, in enabling them to experience the love and the life of God. Now, as we're coming to a close very shortly, I do want to say this. Jesus is pretty clear on what forgiveness isn't, okay? Because I know that in this room, there are people who have experienced things over and over and over again where you would be like, really, I'm finding it really hard. I'm struggling with the 77 mindset, okay? And that's why I think Jesus was clever in that bit. Right before he, he talked about this, which was, if a brother sins against you. What did he say? If a brother sins against you, go and talk to them. So what Jesus isn't saying is just excuse it or just take it. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. What does it say after that? If he listens to do you, you've won your brother over. That's awesome. Who knows that sometimes people have absolutely no idea that what they're doing is hurting you or what they're saying is hurting you. So that's why Jesus is really smart. He says, don't start the messenger group where you get everyone to pray for that person without them because you're feeling concerned because they said some things to you. Um, No, you go and talk to them. But if they don't listen, take someone else. You know what I love about that? That demonstrates to me that God wants some healthy boundaries there. If somebody's sinning against you and hurting you and they're not willing to listen... Take someone with you. That brings safety. That brings a little bit of distance into what's happening. You know what it also does? It helps you understand if you're just wrong. You're like, I know that when John backed into my car, he did it on purpose. John's like, I promise I didn't. It's all good, man. Like, it's all good. I I did it on purpose. (laughs) No, bringing someone else with you into that situation after that helps bring some clarity and some safety and some distance, depending on what we're talking about, as that sin against you. And what does it say if they refuse then? Then it's about, it's a church situation. It's a family coming together to solve something. And it's important because 
It's about protecting you, but it's also about wanting to see somebody won back. Because you know what it says after this? I thought this was really interesting. If he doesn't listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That sounds a bit rough, eh? Treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. Not IRD, but you know. But how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Yeah. Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. Matthew, follow me. He extended love. What did he not pretend? That they weren't already followers. See, if somebody is sinning against and doing things and not willing to change and can't even see why they need to change, obviously they're not a follower of Jesus. Obviously they haven't experienced what it is to have God's transforming power through their life and changed. So what do we do? We love them and we call them back. They are the one sheep. Even though they may be sitting in a pew, they are the one sheep that we're going to call back and see restored. And that is why God wants us to have radical mercy, radical forgiveness. Also, forgiveness is not trust, okay? You can forgive, and it doesn't mean you trust in the situation. Forgiveness isn't reconciliation. You can forgive, but it doesn't mean that things go back to how it used to be. It is God's heart that things are restored. But all he asks is that we forgive. Because you know what's incredible about that word forgive? It literally means to let go. Because who knows that when you're trying to do the 77 times vengeance that you're just holding on to things and you're probably stewing in the car while you're driving while um, that other person, I feel bad saying Pastor John every time now, (laughs) is blissfully unaware. No. God wants us to let these things go, to be able to come to him in his presence and be filled and to be used and overflow and filled and used and overflow and filled and reach out and clean people around us and be filled and be a product demonstration to our world around us and be filled and your colleague at work notices that God has done something special in your life and God's doing something special in your life and filled and your family realize that it's not a phase and you're filled and you can come along somebody and see them cleaned up and filled. You know, I didn't realize the importance of the testimony of time until I had a conversation with one of my old bosses. And this is what my old boss said to me. Uh, We had a little bit of a disagreement and I left work and I came back the next morning and I said, I'm sorry. Now I felt like I was well justified for how I reacted and that I was really upset with something that they had done. Um, But hey, in, in the spur of the moment, I probably erupted a little bit and I obviously gave a little bit of silent treatment too and then turned it around and I'm an emotional person sometimes. I think some people might be able to relate. But first thing I did in the morning is I went and I found them and I said, I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have done that. 
Um, I thank God that they realized that they also had to say sorry. (laughs) Makes it easy. But anyway, the main thing was I said sorry. Then they said this, and I thought, wow, you just have no idea. They said, I knew something must be up because you're always so quick to want to sort it out. I knew it must have been something really big because you're always so quick to want to smooth it out and get things sorted and back on track and reconciled and moving forward. And I had a little moment where I went, wow, people notice the small things. You know, we can read something like that and we think it's about some massive thing or some massive problem, but it's all the little things where we show mercy. It's all the little things where we show forgiveness, where we just let it go sometimes, that feeling that we deserve justice right now and we give it to God. It's the little things where we address it and we don't start the chat without them and we go and see them. We go, hey, we need to have a conversation. It's the little things that demonstrate the product in use. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We pray that you would activate something in your life and shift your life towards Jesus. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, just click follow. We love you. Have a blessed week.